Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. The hype has been built. Whatever hip-hop gangers in the house, the hype is real. The hype is there, you know? And uh, so let's hype it up. This is uh, Jakob. Oh, man, I'm going to murder your last name. (laughs) Jakob Kast. And we just went through this. Jakub Kostalski. Jakub Kostalski from Unbound Creations. And going along with hype, this is finding success where you don't expect it. A rain on your parade postmortem. All right. I will leave it to you, good sir. Have an awesome stream. Awesome. Thanks for the intro. And hi, everyone uh, tuning in. Uh, you have some info here about me. And I will go ahead and talk. Uh, share that at the end as well if you want to follow me or follow our studio um so we'll be we'll be talking about radio parade uh, which is our latest game uh that maybe you've heard about maybe you've not it's a game where you play as a cloud and ruin everybody's day but before i get to that uh i want to do a little bit of an intro and a little bit of history about our studio we are an award-winning independent game studio founded by me uh hi i'm a polish guy i travel around i live in seattle now and I've done a lot of other stuff with storytelling, cinematography. I studied humanities and have a master's in political science and specifically studying ethnic conflict, all of which inspire a lot of my creative works, uh, as you'll see in a second, and which Rainy Parade was very deliberately a big departure from, and I think part of its success. So first, a brief history of our studio. Uh, back when I was uh, a newbie and starting out, uh, I've, I've always loved making games as a little kid, as most of you guys do. And I founded the studio in 2013 with a small game called Postmortem One Must Die, uh, where you play as a Grim Reaper sent to like a charity gala in like the in early 1900s and have to choose one life to take and see how your actions uh, affect the country and its like tense state, which is exactly what my uh, undergrad, my uh, master's degree was about. Um, it was not a huge success, but it did start in my studio. It forced me to uh, create an LLC and kind of start learning about the biz- business side of things. So whatever money that game made, I basically invested in my second game called Karaski What Goes Up, where you're on an, the world's first airship, which is about to crash down, and you kind of have to figure out who's, who sabotaged it, who blew it up before you know, you're all uh, a crash. And... Much like the game, uh, the premise of the game, this was a huge, huge flop. And I basically, I don't think I've ever recuperated my costs till this day. And, you know, it was definitely disheartening, but it was also a very big and important lesson I've learned on my journey. Uh, So I kind of went back to starting small, everything. After I was a few prototypes being very iterative and also approaching game game dev a lot smarter. Uh, So after a bit of a hiatus, I released Headliner, 
which is a game where you play as a news editor. You decide where articles get published every day, and then you watch how it affects the society. You actually can walk through the town. You can interact in the first game with your family, have, like, have a dinner at the end of the day. Very papers, please, but more news-themed. And it had a pretty modest success, good reception. And again, I used the funding from that to fund the kind of like a bigger and better sequel called Headliner Novi News uh, that has been one of our most successful games to date. And it's still uh, giving us kind of like a very strong uh, financial be uh, backbone. And both of those games have uh, been showcased at numerous events, PAX, Tokyo Game Show, Indicate, and we won uh, several awards like Indie Buzz. A series games, best in the game by four gamers at Tokyo uh, Game Show. And we've also had like a sudden surge in uh, YouTube views like six, seven months after release, which kind of pushed the headliner Novi News from be looking like a financial failure to actually being a financial success, like literally over the course of a month, uh, you know, which was uh, kind of like a big lucky break. Uh, that I'll also get a little bit later into how we've tried to replicate it over future games. Um, and it's just a little bit of a side note, uh, you know, there is a saying, you know, don't quit your day job. And while doing the, the, all this, I've also been web freelancing and web development on the side, which has given me personally financial stability and allowed me to take risks with my own games and also invest uh, whatever my games make into the next game. Uh, so that's kind of like kind of a trick, uh, you know, kind of like a cop-out answer to how I've been able to do what I'm doing, um, which has been changing with the latest game, which is Raining in a Parade. And uh, let me play you the quick trailer. I don't know. I hope the audio is working. That's the trailer, and as I mentioned earlier, it's a game where you play as a cute cloud and ruin everybody's day. It's a very slapstick comedy game uh, where you're a mysterious little cloud going through a variety of different levels using different power abilities like rain, thunder, snow. Uh, it's kind of a mix of puzzle and adventure and a unique blend of different genres uh, with inspiration from games like Untitled Goose Game, Donut County, or Katamari Damashi. And... Uh, each level is kind of like a unique little experience with a lot of them giving you different objectives. Some of them are required. Some of them are optional. Uh, some of them are tricky. Some of them are more about skill. Some of them are more about kind of like figure out what's the right answer. Uh, while other levels are a bit more action-based, maybe you have an objective, maybe you have to race against the clock, maybe you have to score points. Uh, there's also like a big 
focus on customization. And one of our best features is the fact that you can actually draw your own face on the cloud. Uh, as you might have noticed, the cloud is actually a little paper cutout. It's all like a diorama style. Uh, so uh, you can decorate with different hats and different accessories. And you can also just really make it, you can really own it, which was uh, also a very deliberate marketing choice, which I'll get into in a second. The game released on April 15th, 2021. So it's almost been out a year. It's out, it released simultaneously on Steam, on Xbox and Nintendo Switch. And it's also been day one on Game Pass. The reception has been uh, really great, honestly, better than I anticipated. We got, we have 98% positive user reviews on Steam with almost 420 uh, reviews. Our Xbox ratings as four, user ratings are 4.4. We got 78 Metacritic on the Switch, uh, which is actually where we got most of our Metacritic reviews from. And we're apparently 92nd best Switch game of 2021, according to Metacritic. Uh, so I mentioned I have a history of uh, politics and kind of like serious social commentary games like the Headliner, which is about fake news uh, and about world politics. So why, why make this silly, colorful game? Honestly, I needed a break. I've been following politics and, you know, sociology, current events for like several years while, while researching these games. And there was also around, you know, uh, the Trump elections and all, uh, and the kind of like the rise of fake news. And I just been so burned out. And I thought like, what's the most opposite thing I can make of this serious, dark, greedy game? And obviously it's a colorful game where you play as a cloud and rain on people and ruin their day. Uh, so it's a it was very much my anti-game. Um, and part of it was also because marketing these kind of serious commentary games is very, very challenging, especially at expos. Like try have someone sit down with their headphones and read text for 15 minutes in a loud environment versus something like this is a much more approachable thing. So I also wanted that kind of a change from like marketing business side. Um, and uh, as, as you're probably gathering a little bit, a lot of the game was designed for success from the beginning. Uh, and what do I mean by that? Uh, first of all, as, as I mentioned, it's a very pick up and play, easy to understand game. You're like, you see the screenshot earlier and you already kind of get an idea. Oh, like there's a cloud ruining, uh, like a wedding, uh, lots of chaos, lots of things are flying in the air. It looks very silly and slapstick. So it's immediately, uh, you might've heard the advice, like capture your entire game in a GIF. And I think that's something this game was very, uh, done very well. And it was also very easy to get into. Like you literally need a joystick with one, like the analog stick and one button terrain, and that's it. So it was immediately like, you don't even need a tutorial, just pick it up and play. Uh, which again also made it so much easier for like exhibiting or showing it or demoing it. Um, another design goal is to have immediate action. Uh, on the right, you see a screenshot from the main menu and the main menu is actually technically the first level because there's no buttons you're navigating. You're actually immediately playing as the cloud and you can move around. You can see on the right that there's the, the two tutorial prompts and you actually activate buttons by raining on them. So it's from the minute the game boots, you're already in the action. Um, it's colorful, it's silly. So it has a very broad appeal, uh, particularly on consoles such as Nintendo Switch. Uh, so 
I mentioned earlier that it's a very like a diorama style game. So if you look closely, you'll see that the trees are made of yarn. The grass is actually a paper towel. Uh, the cloud is made of cardboard and the humans are actually little ragdolls, like literally made from like fa fabric. So uh, it was definitely inspired a lot by uh, Zelda Link and Awakening, uh, releasing on Nintendo Switch, which also had the diorama style, Paper Mario, Yoshi's Woolly World, and those are a lot of games that are, uh, look very nice. They have a cute aesthetic and it's something that a lot of people find it relatable, especially again, like I mentioned on Nintendo Switch. And I want it to be kind of like a Pixar of video games, a game that both kids can play and adults together and enjoy it for different reasons. So there's a lot of like spoofs of other games, movies, things that I grew, grew up like, you know, uh, from The Office to Doom uh, to Metal Gear Solid, uh, but also the gameplay itself is very uncolorful. So kids can enjoy the silly gameplay while parents can enjoy all the jokes and the references. And given the amount of people we've seen uh, tweeting at us pictures of playing the game with their kids, I think we've done a really great job of that. And it's also very shareable, very memeable. So it has a very simple but distinct design. You, as I mentioned, you can customize it, draw your own, uh, draw your own cloud so that you can really own it and make you uh, make you, make it feel like it's your own. You can create a photo mode. There's an art freeform level where you're actually raining on a canvas and you can uh, paint your own designs. Um, so uh, this way you can take ownership, create something cool that you wanna share with people or maybe you wanna meme about. Um, I've actually seen one of our highest Reddit posts is a reference we've put in the game to Bojack Horseman that somebody else posted on Reddit and got like 5,000 upvotes. Uh, so it was very deliberately designed for that. Um, and I also want it to be easy to merchandise if we ever do like t-shirt or, or uh, plushies. Again, because of the simple design, it makes it really easy to make a plushie. Um, but one caveat here is that it was definitely Balancing was def definitely challenging because, you know, we want a silly and approachable game, but we also want to have all those like puzzles and different action bits. So it was always that, you know, what's the right point? Is it too easy or is it too hard? Given that we wanted to appeal to both younger and older players, you know, like what's the, it was definitely very difficult. And there was some, I think overall we did a good job with the balance, but there, we still get a lot of complaints probably that the game is too easy or too boring. Those are, are probably our most um, negative reviews. Um, so some, uh, a few design lessons we've taken from that is, um, listen to your team. So, uh, it was five of us working on the game. Uh, and I was very open to everybody pitching ideas. Uh, the original story and the ending was very different. And our artist, Emmy actually kind of told me like, Hey, listen, um, I don't think this ending idea that you have written is makes sense. It kind of like deviates from that, from this like cute, adorable hero you can root for. And I kind of completely pivoted our ending, which in the end uh, was the right choice for this kind of a game. And I think, you know, keeping like this kind of like an open floor to everyone on your team, even if they're not working directly on the design, uh, was very, very helpful. Um, launching with multiple languages was also very important. Uh, our previous game, Headliner, did unexpectedly well in Korea and Japan when we just added those languages that were community translated at the time. So with this one, I wanted to have those languages from the get-go. So Rainier Parade was fully localized with 10 languages. And we also fully localized the Steam pages, the store pages, the trailers, even the press announcements or the Steam announcements are localized. Uh, and US is only the third biggest country that our revenue is coming from actually. So localizing definitely, definitely helps. And it's very, very important in this day and age. Um, 
I would say focus for us, focusing on influencers over press was critical. Again, a lot of the game was designed to be very streamable and shareable. And that's also what took Headliner from being a failure to success. Like I said, we literally got covered by two really big YouTubers in a month and that just exploded us. Um, and another, uh, and the last design lessons, um, analyzing your stats and keeping finding your audience, which brings me to the last point I was going to make is that I, I lied a bit. Um, I kind of said that this game was designed for success from the beginning, which is true, but it was not a success from the beginning. In fact, the initial reception was bad. Uh, we announced the game in January of 2020, and I had like four different metrics of how I judged uh, the reception and all every single one of them fell short of my expectations uh and initially the game had a different direction it was actually kind of a much more of a crude game similar to the style of like south park or adult swim it was not a very like a wholesome or family-oriented game uh, the working title and what we use for the project files actually is called pissing clouds and uh when we announced it you know we did not get the stream the the um YouTuber, because we had an alpha demo, we did not get the uh, influencer coverage we wanted. We Nobody really picked us up. Uh, we didn't get much engagement on social media or places of Reddit. So I kind of really sat down and really considered like, oh, is this a bad game? Maybe you should scope it down. What's really the problem? And why wasn't it successful? And I kind of started thinking that I still believe the idea. I still think the core idea was solid. So there was something holding it back. And I started thinking that I think just maybe the look and now in retrospect, it's so obvious to, you know, like once you tunnel vision, it's hard to say, but now that I look at it like, oh yeah, this looks like a, honestly, a crappy indie game using, you know, unity, uh, like purchased assets. So I think that's the big thing that was holding us back. And that's kind of what made me pivot into the small colorful diorama style. I also mentioned right at the time Link's Awakening was uh, releasing on Nintendo Switch. And I, I loved the, the diorama feel there. So it was a big inspiration. And the other big thing that helped me uh, pivot is the idea that, sorry, is the experience when we showed the game at DreamHack in Atlanta. And I've noticed a lot of kids would come play and just love the game. And then they, like I would multiple times, kids would come back again, or they would bring their other friends, or they would like bring their parents, or their parents would be watching and laughing as their kid was playing. And that's kind of like started ticking in my head, like think of the kids. Um, this was this could actually be a very kids-friendly game. So after that uh disastrous launch, I basically started like pivoting really hard and turned uh, and from this like crude, silly, like South Park style humor game to a more of this colorful, charming, um, family-friendly game. And that was also something that I've mentioned earlier, how it made sense considering our platform. Uh, if we wanted to publish on Nintendo Switch, a colorful, wholesome game made more sense. Uh, and also maybe not calling your game Pissing Clouds if you want to be in this eShop. <laughs> uh, in retrospect, that might have not been, not have went very well. Uh, so this was kind of like our design goals and how we've designed the game to be successful and how uh, we pivoted design towards something that would be uh, re received better. Uh, so what about the de development? Um, and even the from the development side, there was a lot of, th I put a lot of thought into making this game successful. So first of all, I wanted to make it super easy to make content for. So each level is just an independent Unity scene. We have a lot of reusable elements and systems but it was designed to be every every level was designed to be modular and 
uh, even the main menu, even the credits is literally just a level. Um, and the way we implemented the whole system is that the overworld, which is where you fly around and pick the, your levels, it doesn't even know what levels are. It literally, it's just like, oh, if you rain on this check, you know, this little landmark, it's going to load a level by a name. And only after the level is loaded, it kind of fills in information into the, your actual save file about what's the name of the level, how many objectives does it have. And then when you return to the overworld, the overworld now pulls that information. Uh, so, you know, there's definitely some limitations there, but what it allowed us to do is very easily, like you could create new levels without needing to update any databases. There was never any fear that like, oh, we forgot to update some scriptable object or a, a CDS and now like our game flow is broken. We could rearrange orders of levers, just moving them around in the overworld. There was no change needed to the level itself. And it also made it easy to hire someone to just make extra levels. It's like, just make a, make a new Unity scene and don't worry about anything else about the game. Um, and it also allowed us to experiment with different gameplay styles. There's a tower defense game. There's like a little RPG. There's a first-person shooter spoof. Uh, so it just made the format very, very flexible. Uh, I also made it easy to add decorations. Everything is literally on the cloud prefab. It's just a sprite with a name. And all the game tracks is like which strings you've unlocked. And it like either allows you to have them or it doesn't allow you to have them. So we could very easily add decorations. And we've done that working with influencers where we would make custom hats based on the influencer and it's just, you know, make an image, slap it on the cloud, give it a name, boom, done. Um, it was also easy to add mechanics and systems. Uh, I, I already kind of covered that where there, uh, where, you know, each level was independent and it didn't care about the rest of the game. So you could do literally, you could even, like I said, have a first person controller in one of the levels because why not? All you have to do is make sure you fit in the level of information about objectives. And then the overworld, that's all the overworld needed to know. Um, and also used a lot of like messaging between components and reusable components, which made it easy for us to create new levels and, you know, like have fire propagation, have things re always react to water this certain way. So again, it made it very easy to build new levels. And I also built in a lot of grace for failures. So if something breaks, I wanted to have like a fail safe. For example, there's one level where you have to steal a painting from a museum. And I found out for whatever reason, sometimes the painting would fall out of the world bounds and I could never figure out why. And it would just like keep falling indefinitely. So I added like a cheat code, like a hack code, where if the painting's Y position is below negative 10, it just teleports back to you as the cloud. So I've actually seen this happen on a stream once. And the person's like, where did the, where the painting go? And it just teleported back to them. And it's a little bit weird, but it's a lot better than breaking the whole level and having to restart it. So there was a lot of kind of like, I've known Unity well enough by now to know things will break and I should account for it. Um, and also because of the simple uh, design and kind of like a fixed small camera angle and small levels, uh, it was designed to be performant on multiple platforms, especially on Nintendo Switch, which is always the, the difficult one when it comes to optimization. And lastly, uh, I also designed it with the idea of making it easy to add future DLCs because everything was so independent. All we could do is just slap some more levels and add a new island where you can select those levels. And that's it. Like, you know, we didn't have to like update the base game really. You just had to add a button in the main menu to load that stuff. What didn't work? Nothing. Honestly, everything is, I'm really good at my job. So everything worked out perfectly. Um, obviously I'm kidding. Uh, First of all, uh, a lot of the difficulty in the design, like I said, uh, was tricky because um, a lot of the levels had different um, uh, objectives. So the way I approach the difficulty is like, oh, let's make a few required objectives and then give a 
extra optional objectives that player don't have to actually complete to move forward. And this way, people can kind of like choose your own goals, choose your own difficulty. If you want extra challenge, complete those challenge objectives. If you don't, move on. But that's not what ended up happening. A lot of our players just were completionists and they very, were very, very frustrated, unable to complete the optional objectives that made we made it very hard. Um, so that was a, a very interesting lesson and something that I would definitely approach differently moving forward. Um, we also have like an overarching story with like, uh, if you've seen Princess Bride, that was our inspiration. It's the game starts with a little boy listening to a bedtime story and then it cuts to the cloud. And I didn't feel like people connected with it as much. I don't think people cared for it as well. So I'm not sure exactly why, uh, but I don't know. I feel like that could have done, been done better. Uh, we did not consider uh, familiarity with other titles as much as I should have. You know, there were a few other games that were releasing around the time that I started tracking after release, but we probably could have done a better job about doing some collaboration with those earlier on. And uh, what I've also realized is that this is not a game that your typical Steam user wants. Steam users want dark, gritty games. Uh, they want builders. They want roguelikes. So even though we made it to the uh, uh, popular coming as well as new and trending, we actually fell off of new and trending after just one day. And that was kind of like a big realization that like, whoa, we, we did a good job building up to it. But because this is now your typical Steam user wants, and also because we didn't get as much pr uh, PC coverage as I wanted, we disappeared off of that very quickly. Um, I'll get to it at, uh, a little bit later, but it was, uh, that was also like a realization of just how much genre and style matters for specific platforms. Um, and the initial art style, as I mentioned before, uh, didn't work, but we managed to pivot it early on. So I wanted to talk now a little bit about the publishing process. Uh, and publishing, uh, using a publisher versus self-publishing. Um, so going solo, there's definitely, you know, a lot more stress. There's a lot more things you have to worry about. There's a lot more things you have to manage, you know, from localization to testing, to porting, to making sure you synchronize three different platforms, which have their own timelines and or scheduling some stuff. You have to submit stuff uh, two weeks in advance. Some platforms have to submit stuff a month in advance. Uh, you know, there's events, there's marketing, there's so much stuff that you have to worry about and synchronizing all of that, making sure that, oh, can I actually make sure it all finishes on the same release date is very hard. Um, you have to, you have a lot of learning to do. Like, uh, I've previously ported my game to Nintendo switch. So I knew how to do that, but I was porting to Xbox one for the first time. So I was doing a lot of, I was constantly learning documentation, figure out all the publishing platforms, how they're, you know, uh, platform, uh, Set up, not even just the game itself, but like, you know, how do you feel the store information? What materials do you need? But again, as I mentioned, because this is my fifth game, I've already had a lot of experience doing similar tasks or going through this process, which gave me a bit of an advantage. But the upsides of that is that I have full creative control over the game. I can do whatever I want with it. You know, uh, like nobody will tell me like, oh, this is not a marketable idea. We can do that. I also have full business control, which to me personally is very important. And what I mean by business control is that I can do what I want with the game after it releases and expand on it. Uh, and for instance, that's what you did with merchandising. You know, I could, uh, we worked with the ET to create pins, mugs, shirts. I also wanted uh, plushies that unfortunately hasn't happened, but uh, you know, that's something I just could do myself if I wanted to. Uh, we could also, you know, we did a DLC 
and all the stuff, you know, if we, if we worked with a publisher, the publisher might have said like, oh, actually the ROI isn't good enough. So it doesn't make sense for us to do that. But because I was, I had full business control, I could, I could do all those things. And I'm working on a few additional things right now related to rainy period. I can't talk about just yet. Um, yeah. And a lot of more future potential. I'm much more oriented about long-term st steady sales rather than like quick bang uh, for the buck and in initial release. Uh, which is more traditional. Um, uh, so I'm much more, you know, oriented about the future, like a long-term sales creating that like uh, kind of passive source of income. Uh, it's also more money for the studio, obviously, because there's no one taking a cut. And then we don't have to worry about taking advantage of by, you know, scammy publishers. And, uh, and you know, those are kind of like the rough pros and cons and it's not everyone is cut out for it or even wants to self-publish and that's okay. Like maybe you don't want to deal with all this stuff like I told you, you have to synchronize uh, and maybe you don't know how to do that and that's okay, you know, that's totally, like I'm not trying to say one is better necessarily than the other. Uh, and like I said, I did have the advantage because it was my fifth game and I definitely did not know what I was doing on my first three games really. And, you know, there's a lot of talk for against publishers. So, you know, there's been uh, GDC talks and articles written about it. So Google that. My quick TLDR is, you know, it's whatever you're doing, it's a business deal. And you should seek a publisher who can give you a clear added value to that you cannot provide yourself, whether it's, you know, porting or better marketing or whatever. For one of our games, Headliner of News, we actually worked with Chorus Worldwide worldwide who did a native Japanese release since they're actually operating in the market and they know the Japanese market much better than us. And they also ported the game to uh, two additional platforms that we didn't want to do or didn't have experience to do ourselves globally. Um, so it's something that I just couldn't do or didn't want to do myself. So it was very clear added value and basically extra free money for us. Even with the ref, ref share and recoup, it was 100% worth it. And, you know, if you don't have a concrete idea what you're getting out of a publisher and you haven't considered, you know, what's the best and worst case scenario under the deal you're being offered, you honestly should not be getting a publisher, you know, get, hoping that a publisher will magically make your game sell millions is not a really good strategy to approach uh, publishing. And uh, even big dogs like Devolver have games that flopped or didn't do that well. Um, so that's kind of my like TLDR, whether, you know, you should work with a publisher or not. Um, so a few kind of like quick self-publishing tips. Uh, personally, I'm a big proponent of like set a date and stick to it. And that's kind of took me from being a guy who always made games but never released anything to a guy who has released every single game at the date I plan to release it on with my only delay being two weeks. And that's only because we got the Game Pass deal on Rain in Your Parade. So I decided to like push it a little bit back so we have more time to get ready for it as it kind of came very last minute. Um, so uh, plan ahead, you know, once you have a date, you have an anchor to plan your whole schedule around. And, you know, whatever amount of the time you need for dev, whatever amount of time, you know, also think about stuff like porting, optimization. You know, I've reserved two months for that alone. I also reserved two months for just testing, the polishing, that kind of like things will come up, you know, will, things will come for testing, you know, that I, I don't know what it's going to be yet, but I know I'm going to need time for it. And then I reserved one month for certification and publishing. So, you know, getting approved by the platforms, you know, filling out all the store information. Uh, and honestly, I should have, like, we were, again, because I had experience and I published on platforms before, we actually got through it really quickly. We only had very minor revisions, like we used competitor term or something. Uh, but if it's your first time, definitely, definitely account for more time. 
Uh, and here's just like a quick preview of what, what my development timeline looked like. It was use Trello, use spreadsheets. Honestly, it doesn't matter that much from my perspective, just whatever tool works for you. I just did a simple month by month breakdown of what I have to do, what my other developer Dane had to do, uh, extra features, console related stuff, and then other stuff like, you know, um, uh, marketing stuff, maybe testing, you know, uh, just put it all in a giant spreadsheet month by month. And like I said, you can see towards the right, there's so much empty space. That's the time allocated for testing, polishing, uh, dealing with console certification, uh, all that stuff. That was just, I wanted to get everything done before it because I know that would be time needed for, for those things. looking for a publisher for your game well we have something special just for you it's the most comprehensive listing of pc console and mobile publishers in the industry over 700 companies sorted by platform with links to their websites you can get the list at www.powellgroupconsulting.com slash publisher dash list and you can get it for free check it out And even if you don't have as much to do development-wise, you'll have plenty to do with like marketing, designing, uh, marketing, uh, promoting, research, all those other things. Um, and something that's I think very important is to accept to cut corners. Once you have a date, and uh, try to stick to it, even if it means you have to remove contents on features. And there's definitely a lot of levels that even in Rainier Parade, there were really cool ideas, but we spent like two weeks on it, and it still didn't feel good. And I was like. We can't afford to keep putting more time into it. We have to move on. And, you know, it sucks when you have to do that. But it's something that I think is critical to, you know, keeping your studio afloat, releasing on time. Um, partners are also important. So we had partners for porting, localization. Uh, you know, we had our go-to persons for the different platforms. And that definitely makes it much more easy when, you know, like right now I'm actually, I mentioned I'm working on something. So I had like something I couldn't do myself. So I just emailed my Porting partner be like, hey, I had a question about blah, 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 blah. And they responded to me within a day. And, you know, that saved me, you know, week of researching or mucking around. Um, you know, same with localization, knowing you have someone you can just send a text to and they can also uh, do quality assurance on that. Well, you know, it's very, very important. And, you know, GDC is coming up. So if you're going, you know, that's the time to network and meet those people. Um, marketing, you know, there's, you can do it in-house, you can do outsource. That's uh, something that, Ultimately, me personally, I found it's better to have a dedicated person you hire, even part-time, to do that for you than working with third-party companies. I've had not the best experiences there, or at the best, I felt that I can do something in-house, at least at a similar level for a much smaller cost, and again, I have more control over. Uh, but if it's not something you have any experience or capacity capacity with, again, I like to obsess over stats, so I think I'm equipped for that. But if you don't yourself, then maybe outsourcing it is, does make sense in your case. And also be realistic about the state of the market in your analytics. I've mentioned earlier how the initial launch was terrible, and I started realizing that a lot of kids like this game. Uh, so I was because I was aware of that, I recognized that opportunity, and I was honest about the analytics when we launched, like, wow, this is doing terribly. This is going to be a failure unless I change something. Uh, so I was very realistic about uh, 
you know, what's happening. Um, the one thing I didn't account for is that I mentioned is what people on Steam want to play. And that's definitely bit me a little bit, you know, so that was a, another lesson learned. So now uh, I think probably the most exciting part is the results, a tale of three platforms. And this is kind of where the title of the stock finding success where you don't expect it comes from, because even though the game was a success, it did not work out the way I expected it to. Um, oh, oh. So first of all, let's talk about Steam. Um, typical expectations are, and that's the platform I had most experience with, and that's the one I banked on doing the best. And that's the one that was honestly the most disappointing of the three. Um, so typical exp expectations that you might have heard of stats before is like typical one week revenue is uh, times five is what your one year revenue. Um, so what it means that whatever money you make in the first week of your release, multiply by that five, and this is your one year revenue. So the first week is a very critical predictor. And of course, you know, it's there's a lot of edge cases, but that's the general rule. Um, the typical one week wishlist conversions rates, according to Valve, is 13%. So if you got a, a thousand wishlists, 130 people on that wishlist will buy the game within the first week. Um, and also, you know, if you have enough wishlists and you have enough momentum, then you can get onto popular up, uh, upcoming and the new and trending. And I do mention the momentum because that's something that I don't see enough people talking about. I see always people talking about uh, wishlist and set of absolute numbers, but I think the momentum uh, of how quickly you're getting wishlist is just as if not more important than how many wishlists you have. And I've definitely seen people with fewer wishlists than us getting in front of us on the popular upcoming because they were gaining wishlists much more rapidly than we are. Um, so a few caveats and a few lessons I've learned is that old wish lists are bad. Are honestly, the game was out for over like on Steam for over a year when we released it, and our wish list conversions were bad. Like I mentioned, that thirteen percent rate, we were way below that, about half of that. And however, if I adjust our wish list to just the past like five six months, then it actually aligns perfectly with all the predictions. And I know uh, No More Robots, uh, another like fantastic indie game publisher, also mentioned a lot that they don't only release their Steam pages for only six months. And that's kind of what I've observed too, where like anything older than that just doesn't convert, uh, convert very well and isn't very useful for making predictions. Um, another big lesson is checking your region. And that's something that I did not account for. Half of our sales are from like uh, China or Russia or other countries where our unit price is uh, a lot lower compared to the US or Western price. And there are much higher rates of refunding. So even though we might have hit the unit numbers we are we've expected, our actual revenue is a lot lower than I expected on Steam because I did not account for those regional differences. And it's a little bit hidden, but if you go to in Steam under like your sales report for your game, unreleased game, you're gonna see zero. But if you press the plus that expands like a country or a region, it'll show you your wish list number for that specific region. So that's something you really want to pay attention to and consider, and also use it uh, to consider localization or localized marketing. You know, if your game is picking up on Korea, maybe it's a good idea to try to focus more on Korean marketing or approach Korean streamers. Um, so what I also did is I'm, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, I tracked a bunch of games that were releasing similar time or similar genre and. Uh, as I, uh, and I kind of seen a lot of variety was going by follower numbers where 
gains with a lot more followers actually did worse than us gains with fewer followers did better than us and you know i don't think they would the wishlist number is the be all end all of your success. It's definitely very important, but I think, as I mentioned, the velocity of gaining wishlists is even more in some cases important than just the raw number. And well, I, honestly, I feel like wishlists are only really important to get on that popular upcoming and the new and trending. So then you're showing it to everyone on Steam and past that, honestly, like I said, it, it, I don't think they matter as much. Uh, you know, it's only kind of like your ticket to the bigger exposure. And wishlist are not a replacement for my community following. Uh, you know, like those people are just clicked at the wishlist. They're not your fans. They're not engaged with you. And you can't expect the same kind of a return on investment for someone clicking at the wishlist as someone who joins your Discord or your mail list. And sadly, PC Press really doesn't care about indies. Uh, from what I've noticed, uh, it's a, a lot of coverage we got kind of happened uh after we already started getting some traction so what matters for steam genres and tags uh events events steam uh, next event we basically uh, since it was uh, a lot of virtual happenings i looked at a lot of stuff that anything that had a steam presence i would just submit our game to because then we get some kind of front page feature hopefully um pre-release demo was really big big help post-release not so much i think post-release demos actually hurt your sales um, influencer coverage, I think helped us somewhat, but it was very hard to quantify, you know, especially after a launch, uh, it's hard to say where our traffic is really coming from, uh, press review scores, uh, again, not so much. I don't think it was as useful except for maybe Nintendo switch. We actually got a lot of reviews there. Um, and a few greater sources are how to market a game blog by Chris Zukowski and the game discovery co-newsletter by Simon Carlos. Uh, you know, great marketing resources, specifically on Steam. Uh, so check those out for a lot of juicy data. Now let's talk about Nintendo Switch. It's unfortunately a bit of a black box. You don't fully understand, don't fully understand how it works, what's there, and there's only limited data I can get out of it. You know, with Steam, there's a lot of stuff you can see. A lot of you know, you can check followers, review numbers. You can see their engagement on their you know community pages. There's a lot of data points that are not. Uh, visible on other platforms. I can't get into details to NDAs, um, but it was definitely a much, much harder. Like I said, I had a prediction of how, how many units we we're going to sell. I had no idea how we we're going to do on the Switch. Uh, but we did get a lot of reviews. We have, I think, 13 Metacritic reviews for Nintendo Switch, which I think helped us a lot. Uh, and again, No More Robots said, uh, I think that their Switch sell, sell about 10% of their Steam numbers, but all of those were released after the initial launch versus us doing a simultaneous launch uh, probably worked out much better. Uh, our launch switch numbers were very close to Steam, but they were more profitable because of uh, the different region regionality that I mentioned. Um, and also, I've considered if our game is a good fit for the platform, like I mentioned. So again, the style, the the gameplay was very good for the Switch. And you know, uh, overall, though Steam, even though it had a worse launch, it seems to have a bit of a steadier long tail. Uh, I think that's kind of like a discoverability on Steam is still, I think, best from all, all the platforms. Um, Xbox, uh, it's honestly hard for me to make any judgments because we did get on Game Pass since day one, so that skews our numbers. And I think we had 250K installs in the first month and because of Game Pass. And again, is that good? Is that bad? I don't, it's really hard to say because I think the platform at the time had around 20 million users. 
it's probably more than that. So, you know, it's 250K out of 20 million. Is that good? Is that bad? You know, I don't think there's really data on that. And, you know, um, I don't know. <laughs> but it did make me refocus a bit on lever. Like, we already have that big install base. So when we think about how do we leverage that with merchandising, DLC, sequels, you know, how, how you know, that kind of shifted my priorities a bit. Um, so to delve a little bit into the, you know, our Game Pass experience, so I think it's, first of all, it's not a strategy. It kind of came to us very last minute. And, you know, it's it's something that, you know, you obviously want to get, but it's not something you can like count on, you know, and you shouldn't base your whole development that you're going to do that. Um, why do we, why do we were offered that opportunity? Um, again, not entirely sure. And I can't, you know, give all the details, but, you know, I think a lot of this because we are pushing ourselves into a lot of events, we're active on a lot of spaces. So our game was out there a lot, even though we didn't feel at the time, like we're getting as much coverage, you know, we we're constantly pushing us everywhere. We have a very broad appeal. We're very family oriented. You know, we have a E10 rating. Uh, we have a very easy pickup, flexible interface that works for a PC. It works on Xbox. It works on at the X cloud very easily. We have a ton of languages. Uh, and again, yeah, we have that good marketing presence. So I think that made it like a very broad appeal game that i think just made sense to to put on a subscription platform that already has a wide user base and has so many um uh kind of like a, a family oriented platform i think our game would fit that, that kind of like uh, genre and style it did require a bit of a crunching and to supporting like the ms store as well um you know and again it, it was like bigger launch a bigger deal so what again extra stress for me and like you know, there was definitely some sleepless nights worrying oh what if we launch and it's all broken um but the overall i would say it was a great experience you know contract negotiations were pleasantly human and very simple microsoft staff has been very supportive and responsive they've been great to work with um there's still been less a lot of last minute things that would pop up here and there as there's always is but it was good to feel that uh, you know, the relationship was, was very great. And some final thoughts, uh, areas we focused most on uh, did initially the worst, as I mentioned, steam, what I have developed did delay my game to release on multiple platforms simultaneously. Uh, I think so. Yes. Um, it did help us, um, have overlap between marketing on different platforms. It allowed us, you know, like maybe if we released on steam first, maybe the game pass deal wouldn't have worked as well. Um, so some, I've seen a lot of indie publishers, they publish on Steam first and then the other platforms. I think for us, it made more sense to do it together. Again, multi-language support was important and uh, we got a lot of players from, uh, especially Asian countries, China, Korea, Japan are one of our biggest uh, demographics. Uh, press outreach was worth it for consoles. Yes. I think for switch. Uh, for PC, you know, we did get some mentions in like the escapist, PC gamer, destructoid, uh, but it was very difficult and, uh, I'm not sure how much that contributed. We've seen bigger spikes, honestly, from like influencers, YouTubers, and streamers, uh, speaking of that streamers were, uh, flaky, uh, which I'm not sure if maybe we approached incorrectly. We did a whole promo where we made a bunch of custom hats in for the cloud based on different streamers. We pitched it to a bunch. We got a bunch of them being responding, being excited about it and soup, you know, oh, this is really cool. And then we, when we, the release window came, only one of them ended up covering it. So it was a big bummer. And I don't know, maybe we should have had something more concrete in writing or maybe we didn't approach it correctly. But it was, you know, it definitely felt a little bit uh, like a missed opportunity there. Uh, 
that we didn't care, that we didn't do right. Um, uh, also, some mid-level paid streamers were hugely ineffective. We did some paid promotions, and I don't know, maybe we just didn't pick ones, but it really it didn't it didn't work out very well for us. Uh, we got a lot better results from like not doing any paid uh, coverage. Uh, again, you know, it's I feel like if you have a lot of budget and you can afford a lot of people, you can definitely uh, a lot of coverage. You can build up that snowball effect that picks up. And that's what a lot of other bigger publishers do. But if you're an indie and you have a limited budget and you can only afford a few bigger streamers, then maybe there's just not enough of that like network snowballing effect there to really take advantage of it. And, you know, again, as I mentioned, Game Pass made us refocus a bit on the on leveraging uh, the existing player base rather than trying to capture a whole new one. Um, speaking of that, this is the end of my talk, but this talk comes with a DLC. And the DLC to this talk for free is talking about the DLC. Um, so the original game released on April 15th, and we released a DLC on December 15th. Why? Um, Christmas. I wanted to, especially with it being such a family-oriented game, I wanted it to be a game that, you wanted the DLC to be ready to be uh, bought for Christmas by parents for their kids, if their kids love the base game. Uh, TLDR, it did better than I expected, worse than I hoped. Um, what were my goals with that? Uh, again, kind of like going back to like design and development and business goals. Uh, so I, again, release it in time for Christmas, Have develop it under a certain budget I had in mind, uh, kind of more of the same. I knew people liked the game and they, a lot of comments said like, oh, I want more levels, one more this. So I didn't feel like we need to reinvent things. We just have to give people more of the same, more levels, more decorations, you know, more powers. Um, it has to have at least 15 new levels and one new power. I wanted to price it at $9.99. So I needed enough content to justify that price. And that's also why I wanted to add developer commentary mode to add that value, uh, because it was something that was relatively easy to add and record but it added enough value that I feel it was fine to justify that $9.99 price. Uh, I also consider co-op and I would have loved to done co-op, but all the research I've done on co-op games, especially post-release, just it made it sound like it would not make sense. It would be very tough unless we did online multiplayer and it's something that is a little bit beyond my head. So I did not want to get into it, unfortunately. And how did it do? Uh, on Steam, the DLC sales are worth th about 3% of our total base game sales uh, in, in the first two weeks of the uh, when the DLC released. Honestly, I was expecting maybe only 1% from the research I've done based on other games or, or seeing, you know, comparing reviews to a DLC to base games for other games. Uh, so we did actually much better than I expected. And each day right now, the DLC sells uh, like day to day compared to the base game, maybe 25 to 50% of what the base game is selling. So it's actually really nice, uh, like added money um, uh, per day as well, uh, based on our uh, original. Uh, for the Switch, the DLC sales are a bit 1.5% of total base game within the first two weeks. But our EUS, EU version release, was delayed for reasons. <laughs> Uh, so if I include the base game and the DLC bundle, then it's about 2%. Um, and on the Xbox, since we're on Game Pass, then our there's no the percentage is really small because we've got so many Game Pass players, and obviously a lot smaller percentage is going to purchase the DLC. Um, but uh, Xbox is shipping up to be around... Uh, 
80% of the DLC in the first two. So yeah, a lot of, uh, because, you know, we didn't have so many uh, base sales, a lot of our uh, sales uh, are actually coming from the DLC because, you know, people are playing the base game for free on the Game Pass, but then now they're purchasing the DLC. So the DLC is shaping up to be a huge margin of what our actual revenue is going to be made uh, on top of like whatever the Game Pass fees we are getting. So overall, I haven't broken even on the DLC yet, but I probably will in, uh, in a little longer while. As I mentioned earlier, I'm more of a long-term oriented, so that's okay. You know, it's just a winning game. Um, and again, I'm seeing big, bigger percentages than expected. So it was, you know, uh, I'm pleasantly surprised about that. Um, and what I, uh, I'm kind of getting low on time. So just kind of rush through the last part. What I did to promote the DLC, we had a end game menu prompt about the DLC. Um, so you can see on the right on the, I added like the DLC out now and like DLC is coming soon. Uh, added a base game plus DLC bundle on all platforms. So you, know, you can just buy them together and save like 10%. Updated the DLC, uh, the Steam capsule with the DLC coming out soon. Uh, used discoverably rounds on the on Steam. I pinged all previous publications and uh, uh, YouTubers who covered the game if they want to play the DLC as well. And um, uh, the DLC coverage we got was very low, which honestly I expected. Um, and honestly, I think the big lesson is that if we released it maybe earlier, closer to initial uh, release, uh, I think it would have done better. Maybe a, a few smaller piece, uh, piecemeal-sized DLCs more quickly would have made more sense. Uh, but overall, I think it was worth it. If, only if anything, I've learned a lot about the process from the technical side, how to set up DLC, to how to publish it, how to market it, what works, what doesn't, how the DLC uh, affects different platforms. And next time I do a DLC, I'll do it a bit much more smarter because, you know, I've learned those lessons. Uh, and I think Paradox gave a GDC talk where they said DLC should be part of your business plan from day one. And I think that's very true. And that sums up my talk, you know. Uh, thank you very much. Here's, if you want to follow me, it's at Kubazor. If you want to follow our studio, it's at Unbound Creation. And I would love to take some questions now. All right, so yeah, anybody got questions, drop them. I was gonna tell you, go ahead and take your time. You're, you were the last one. So if you wanted to end later, that is totally 100% fine. Well, let's let's see here. Uh, we have some comments. Multiplayer would have been a huge undertaking. What do you think about that? Multiplayer. Yeah, multiplayer so, uh, yeah, I've never actually done any multiplayer stuff. So that's a very area that's new to me. So I knew I would have to do a lot of learning. And from all the reading and research I've done is local co-op games do not tend to do very well. You really kind of need the online multiplayer to make them successful. So on top of just doing multiplayer stuff, I would also have to look into networking and that kind of stuff. Um, and it was just a lot more than I was prepared for. So mm -hmm. I scrapped it. And also because it basically shifts our genre from a single player like a family friendly game to a couch co-op game so if we did as a dlc i think we would have missed out on a big marketing opportunity because people already heard it people already covered it nobody wants to cover dlc for a game unless it's already wildly successful so if i did a, a co-op version of the game i would have released it as a whole separate game kind of how like don't starve did it they did a whole separate game called don't starve together that was the model i would follow All right no that totally makes sense that totally makes sense. Oh, okay, here we go. Here's a question from Nadnerb. 
on YouTube, did you have social media pages that kept you that you kept before the release? Additionally, do you currently maintain them? Yes. And what I do is I have a, a Twitter, Facebook, and recently TikTok accounts for my studio. And I don't like creating separate accounts for different games because this way I can kind of roll over my uh, audience as a, and kind of try to build a bigger uh, company like fan fan club basically because you know I'm always gonna come up with new games so I don't want to create and start from zero every time mm-hmm. and I do still keep it up and I think that uh, I don't know I don't use Facebook much but Facebook is great for uh, paid ads Twitter is good for networking connecting with publishers press people it is not good for building an audience and no one clicks links on Twitter like you're if you run ads on like CTR is gonna be awful. Mm-hmm. Um, TikTok, I've heard a lot of things and that's something I'm exploring with. I hear it's very like hit and miss, like you explode and suddenly get 40,000 views or you're kind of like weighing with like a few hundred views per video for weeks, months. Uh, so it's very uh, erratic from what I'm seeing. So that's kind of a quick TLDR. Right. And, you know, larger companies, they will, you know, they will have like their their account, but then they have accounts for individual games. But mm-hmm. honestly, as a smaller indie dev, you want to build your brand for the company. Mm-hmm. So that is a really good advice. Uh, let's see. What are some resources for getting in contact with influencers and some advice you would give for that? Honestly, the best thing you can do is reach them, reach out to them directly. So what I did is I looked at influencers who played similar games to mine. I actually mm-hmm. wrote like a Python script that like scrapes uh, channel, like basically searches YouTube and like finds videos based on like a game name. Uh, and then it just gives me a list of those. And then it's still annoying because you still have to go to their pages, find their email. Some of them don't list it. So you have to go on Twitter. Um, so oh, that's honestly find people who play similar games. Uh, keep it simple, short description, funny gif. Would you like a key or just include the key directly in the email? Uh, that's it. Um, that's honestly, I've used platforms like Keymailer, Wovit, and I had mixed experiences I could uh, rant about, but I don't know if I want if we want to get into that. Uh, so those are can help as well. But honestly, direct approach uh, based on similar games is probably going to be most effective. I know you can also start building actual relationships with those people. Be like, hey, remember when you played my game? Want to check out new game? Uh, and we actually did get one of the bigger, bigger streamers who covered Headliner to also cover uh, Ren in Your Parade because we had that prior relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a comment from Jack Melcher. Um, I'd say one big streamer might do better than a bunch of mid or smaller streamers. I just might have to disagree with that because one big streamer that has maybe a thousand viewers, they there comes a point when you're streaming that you are it's no longer you're interacting with your community it becomes you're just somebody on the screen doing whatever you're doing. Like if somebody that has 10 viewers or 50 viewers, they're interacting with their community, right? They're, you know, they know some of them more personal on, on Discord, right? Somebody that has a consistent 10 viewers that I bet you they say, hey, you guys go and get this game. And if they're probably half of them would probably do it. But somebody that has a thousand viewers, they're playing a game. They're not interacting with their chat. They say, hey, check out this game. It's just another game, but that's my personal opinion. I mean, I'm sure there's circumstances where it's a little bit different than that, but what's what's your opinion on that? Um, I think it really depends on which streamer and versus, you know, like it really is a case-by-case basis. And one caveat I would say is that in my experience, even though everybody's always talking about streamers, YouTubers are performing 
much better for us as a marketing channel than streamers. A big YouTuber has helped us a lot more than a big streamer. And I kind of mentioned that I've done some paid streams and I had kind of like a minimum expectation of what to get of it. And it did significantly worse than I anticipated, which, mm -hmm. you know, again, maybe I just didn't pick the right people. Maybe, uh, you know, I think, like I said, I think it boils down to creating that network effect where you have like a lot of people streaming the game at once. And then this makes other people pick it up as well. So you do want to create that snowball effect. But if you just like pick and choose individual ones, uh, unless there's someone who like Foof Headliner, we got 2 million views between two different streamers within like a span of month. So that exploded us. But, you know, can you really get that? If you can get, yeah, if you can get a, a YouTuber who can, he'll give you 2 million views, uh, then yeah, that'll have a huge impact on you. But, you know, it's much easier to get smaller or mid-level, like a lot more smaller mid-level uh, cre uh, content creators than it is to get that guy who has 10 million subscribers. Right, right. And it also has to do with your game, right? Like, mm -hmm. if your game does not look appealing, people aren't going to buy it anyways, right? And I got to say that uh, Rain on Rain on Your Parade is super appealing, super cute. I mean, we talked before this. I was like, oh, I love that. I would play that on my stream. Uh, so here we go. One more question, then we'll get out of here. Et won't phone home from YouTube. Asks, would you avoid a release date near Christmas for future projects? Yes. For a base game, I would not basically anything from like October to uh, like end of January, I think is kind of a dead zone for indies because there's so many triple releases. I remember when we actually released Re uh, Headliner Novi News in end of October, and it was the same week where Re uh, Red Dead Redemption released. So we basically got like zero coverage. And, you know, um, that was definitely a lesson. I did it for the DLC because I wanted to get it in time for Christmas. And uh, it's, it's a DLC, so I kind of expected I wouldn't really get any coverage anyway, or not that much. So I think leveraging existing user base, uh, particularly on Game Pass, was more important than gave, getting like fresh new coverage. So it made sense for us to release it by uh, in time for Christmas. Um, and yeah, ideally, I, I should have done it earlier to the base game release when it's still popular, uh, more popular. Uh, but, you know, that was... Uh, I think it worked out pretty decently for us. So again, yeah, base game, I wouldn't do it in those months. For a DLC, I think it made sense. Mm, okay, that's an interesting perspective. I dig it. Well, thank you, Jakob, for coming on here. Tomorrow at 9 Eastern, we are going live again, and we have, I, how did, I'm not going to count them right here. So I'll read this off, what we have tomorrow. Your guide for returning to live events. Failing while scaling. Common pitfalls, growing your company, how to make the press pay attention to your game, the three things that actually impact how well your game sells. And that is Mr. Chris Zakowski, who you mentioned in your oh, yeah. presentation. Definitely yeah. check it out. That's a so great This resource. will be a new thing from Chris Zakowski, which will be awesome because that dude, that dude knows his stuff. Yeah. Uh, game produ production AMA. Ooh, and that's from Heather Chandler from Heather Makes Games, Sarah Spears from PUBG, and you need. Uni Jackscrab from Paradox. That's going to be a great one. Uh, the video game production pipeline. Epic Mega Grants for indie developers. And that's Christian Allen from Epic Games. That one is going to be at 1500 hours Eastern. So that is one, two, that's three o'clock Eastern. I had to math it in my head because I don't do the 24 hour clock. That's going to be an awesome one that you are not going to want to miss. And the very last one we have is a fireside chat, leveraging TikTok 
to promote your in, indie games. So if you guys are not, if you don't have a ticket, indiegame.business, check it out. Also come to our Discord, discord.gg slash business. Bam, go in there. There's a bunch of great resources. There's a bunch of other indie devs. There's a bunch of big wigs in the industry. It's amazing in there. So thank you so much, Jacob. We thank really you so appreciate much. It Thank you for much. listening, everyone. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.